and welcome back to Beware the Artist. I am Jeremy Jersa, and with us this week on the show, we have Ryan Sorrell. Uh, Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing uh, excellent. How are you doing, Jeremy? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good, doing pretty good. Um, if you want to go ahead and tell everyone who you are and what is it that you do? Um, so my name is Ryan Sorrell. I'm primarily a painter. Uh, I have a pretty intensive drawing practice, but that isn't something that always makes it out into the world. It's more kind of a back-end thing. Um, I've been based in Baltimore since around 2008. So I keep thinking that I've been in Baltimore for a decade, but it's more than a decade. Um, and uh, I occasionally write about art. Um, and I'm, I also uh, teach. I teach painting, drawing, professional practice, things like that in the, in the region. So nice, nice. So when it comes to your studio practice, what themes do you find yourself exploring? So typically with regard to what the subjects are that show up, um, I'm oftentimes centered on intimate domestic spaces, interiors, very lived interiors with dense constellations of, of objects, you know, really familiar forms, uh, the things that we're kind of around and that we live with and among and engage with all the time. Um, I don't work exclusively in that space, but it tends to be the place where, where many things happen. I also have, you know, a, a long running parallel practice of a lot of landscape work. And that's actually something that um, probably no coincidence with the way things have been this past year that um, in my drawings and, and even some pastel work that kind of cropped up and a lot of uh, oil paintings. There's been a lot more landscape. And in, in, in that landscape space, it's still always really uh, intimately familiar outdoor spaces that I'm like really deeply invested in. Mm -hmm. So it's always that kind of spatial uh, intimate experience, whether it's indoors or outdoors, that's kind of the main place that I'm at as far as subjects go. Great, great. So how do you actually go about starting a work? There, there have been a lot of ways. Um, I try to keep my strategies pretty varied so that I'm always surprising myself, but I know that I do always begin from essentially a, a core sense memory is I, I think the best way that I can put it. Um, and it's oftentimes not an optical, not a visual memory. It's really typically something visceral, something tactile, something emotional, psychological. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, something as, you know, as subtle maybe as, as like heat or humidity, you know, like the way that, that, that the environment uh, acts on and engages with the body, you know? So things that even though I'm making paintings, uh, they don't always start from a, a kernel of visual information. Um, 
So the way that the thing actually begins is really um, out of something that, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, I think it's it's very close to a parallel meditation practice that I have. Mm -hmm. It's like a long running thing. So in recent years, I've kind of realized that that space overlaps with the beginnings of painted space for me. So there's a lot of clearing everything out of the way, landing on that core sense memory, mm. and beginning very, very thinly, very, very fluidly to paint on like an oil primed ground um, that almost behaves um, like a sheet of marble. You know, mm. it's, it's like doing a water, like a, like a massive watercolor that yeah. I can sketch in very thin, watered down, uh, not saturated paint. Um, and that gives me the ability to essentially sketch, plan, build, uh, maybe not plan, but sketch and, and respond intuitively to that core sense memory. And if things begin to get off track because of that oil ground, I'm able to use some safflower oil and, and things and get it back to completely pristine in a way that other kinds of grounds wouldn't allow you to do that. Um, so yeah, they begin, they begin that way. They, one thing I would say is they never really, is, is, you know, much to my chagrin, they never really can start from a drawing. Like they never really can start from a separate drawing. Even if they're drawings of the kind of subject that I'm thinking of, I have never been able to make these things live and just be a translation of the thing. That's it, you know? yeah, yeah. And so, that's the thing that's been super frustrating. To me <laughs> I, always, I always think that I'm going to actually pull it off and it never works. So so would you say it's it's pretty reactionary as to what's necessarily happening? You, you don't have a set goal in mind other than this this projection of, of feeling or sense memory that's first kind of starting out on the, the canvas? I mean, yeah, it's, it's deeply responsive. Um, deeply intuitive and I always and just because maybe this is because I teach and I know that that intuitive is a word that gets used like very loosely mm -hmm. um, but I was a I was an improvising musician for a long time um, and the kind of responsive intuitive process that I'm referring to when painting mm -hmm. really is kind of like a live improvisatory space where in in this case we maybe have a little bit of ability to go backwards slightly right. um but for the most part it's kind of tumbling forward and trying to control and steer this avalanche to make sure that nothing gets too kind of uh too watered down mm -hmm. it really is always kind of stepping back and saying not so much you know does it look this way or look that way should this get larger or smaller or you know more often it's really, does this resonate true to what the initial intention was for the, for the piece? And not that that intention can't modify as the thing grows and hopefully becomes richer, um, but that I'm pretty rigorous with what, what passes and what doesn't make the cut. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So at what point do the kind of, the more recognizable um, kind of imagery start to to flow into the the, the composition itself. Yeah, uh, I mean that's they come and they go. Um, 
I mean, I definitely, I know the, the things that you're talking about where it's, I think, especially in a lot of the interior images, mm -hmm. there tend to be um, kind of human scaled or hand scaled or body scaled forms that maybe begin to resolve or crystallize a little bit, we'll say truer in air quotes uh, mm -hmm. to, to some kind of optical appearance than other things. Um, they fade in and out because it's all kind of a calibration. Yeah. So what happens there, sometimes those things, um, something might get tossed up right at the beginning in a really thin wash and it stays legible and recognizable in a way all the way through. Sometimes it's right at the very end. And at that point, those things tend to be denser, more sculptural, more impostoed, more kind of like on the surface of the thing, a little bit more architectural. Mm -hmm they show up it's almost like one of those rock climbing walls like they show up to be a, a handhold or a foothold within the image because i never want the whole thing to to present too uh coherently in that way but i always want to kind of you know build in all of these moments of, of cracking, of, of rupture, of, of dissolution, uh, of, all of, the, of all the presented forms and all the presented subjects. And part of making that work and part of making that language activate is that certain forms, and I can never really tell from, I'll always think it's, you know, the, you know this little cup is just going to be the anchor that saves this whole painting. And then yeah. It's always a thing that, you know, 90% of the way through, I realize I have to obliterate that entirely, then everything kind of exhales and relaxes and does its thing. Um, so it, it's still, like I was saying earlier, it, it's, it is always that uh, responsiveness to what that individual element does in the overall orchestration of the thing. You know, yeah. so I, I wish, like I'm sure most painters <laughs> wish that we could could project a little bit further down the line and know which things to hold on to. But so, you know, there's every one of those paintings for the most part has, you know, five, 10, 15 takes underneath it in different ways, so. Yeah, I totally feel that. I One thing I like to, to tell my students is that, um, you know, we, we tend to look at the artwork that is up in the gallery, the artwork that is put out on the world, if it's on the artist website, whatever, but we don't necessarily see the multiple iterations of that piece and how it came to fruition and to reiterate the, the process of actually working. And, and that I feel like that's where most of the, the joy of painting actually comes into it mm -hmm. um, through that process and through that, that translation, that the thinking on the actual canvas itself. Um, so you, you started to speak a little bit before about a parallel uh, kind of meditative practice. Um, in terms of your studio practice, what's actually happening in the studio when you're working? Do you have uh, music playing? Do you have incense burning? Is there Netflix in the background? What's, what's that about? <laughs> um, I, you know, there's no incense burning and there's no, there's, there's no Netflix, there's no podcasts or, or narratives or things like that. Um, it tends to swap back and forth between um, 
as silent as possible or as neutral of white noise as possible. I have this, you know, you know, like ancient 200 pound box fan <laughs> that's all metal. They don't make them anymore because I'm sure it's horribly dangerous. Um, <laughs> but it's an amazing white noise machine. Mm. Um, so I need either the most dense blanket of silence or white noise or um, incredibly loud music in my headphones. Um, and, and yeah, it tends to have to be in headphones. I can't have any kind of like constraint or thing like that when I'm moving around. Um, and really as, as a painting or a body of paintings progresses, the range of the songs tends to pare down. And then even a particular song will become an aspect of the whole dance with, with the, the making of the thing. So that's another thing that kind of, that, that shows up that's, that's, you know, that is related to different kinds of much more physical, uh, physical uh, mindfulness practices, kind of like really activating the body through dance. There actually is, you know, I hopefully never recorded doing this, but there's an awful lot of movement in the studio <laughs> as things are happening, so. Um, one thing I, I wanna talk about is, uh, and, and you started to touch on it a little bit before, before um, is just the, the quality of paint within within your paintings. Um, someone might even call them a painter's painting due to just the, the kind of the, the washes and then the lushness of the paint and, and just the, the physicality, but yet the control as well through the, the execution of that brush. Um, can you speak a little bit to your relationship with the surface and these layers? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I love the material. Uh, I love what it can do and really what it can do to, to make us question our application of kind of stabilized language on top of forms, on top of images. So that really is another one of my big driving concerns in these paintings is mm -hmm. to kind of find a way to loosen up our reliance or our belief in the stability of our projection of language across our experience mm -hmm. right to bring it to just like i'm working in a in a, a sensory intuitive way i want to try to like push that out of the paintings to maybe make our, make a viewer's uh, awareness of their body and space a little bit more intensified in a, in a sense and kind of push away some of the language that, that numbs that a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and that all meets up with the, the handling that you're talking about, right? Those are the reasons um, where I might think that it makes sense to, to lay something down with three or four washes all on top of one another. And then I realized, well, that I did that because I think I probably was guided more by it would look nice and I've got to get rid of that and replace it with a thing that it really needs. Mm. Um, it, it builds 
the, those different forms of painterly language coming together in this network uh, of each painting, I'm trying to build a space with those types of forms where everything feels as though it is peripheral. Interesting. So that when you look at the whole painting, oftentimes people's response is that the space feels really legible to them. Like it feels like you're looking into a, a, a room or you're looking across the table. But then when you look at a, at a single form, it dissolves. Like your eyes kind of make it evaporate. But then something out of the corner of your eye you know, waves to you and says, and, you know, calls you over there. Then you look at that thing and it appears solid for a second and then it fades away, right? So like that kind of make everything appear peripheral because our peripheral vision is oftentimes like what we, what we use to experience, what, what, what the experience is that grounds us in a space. So that was a, an idea that I had, you know, years ago, an, an awakening to the, the crucial nature of uh, peripherality in, in making an image. So the different, the different handlings work to that end. Um, I tend to work really fluidly, um, very, you know, stages and stages of building up a painting because I'm not trying to do, you know, I'm trying to do lots and lots of glazes to get these, mm -hmm. these luminous kind of backlit colors. Um, so it's a lot of waiting and looking, you know, to build these things. It ends up being, you know, I'll, I'll put in a session if I'm if I'm happy with where things are and I can project a little bit into what the next few sessions are going to be. I have to leave it alone. I mean, depending upon what the pigment is for a day or five days, and then come back to it and then try to go right on top of it and try to keep the clarity and the precision between all those things, so I can try to get that feeling of you know, sometimes something very, uh, very amorphous and almost like a fog. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's soft and dissolving, but more like um, a backlit screen or stained glass. And then sometimes it's much more dense and solid and architectural. Um, so really like that's where a lot of that comes in. And in the scratching away too, there ends up being a lot of scratching away in the surface. Um, and whether something is fully scraped away, whether it's kind of just incised in with the back of the brush or an exacto or a little a bunch of the little tools that I have in the studio, um, a lot of it is always trying to get the form, get the marks to occupy multiple spaces simultaneously, if that makes sense. So it can feel yeah, it like totally does. Yeah. even if it's an image of a singular space, right? I'm not overlaying entirely dis, uh, distinct spaces one on top of another, but I am oftentimes overlaying different times of day, you know, mm. experiences years apart from one another or hours apart from one another, all on top of one another, thinking almost about uh, a room, a tabletop, a home as something akin to a clock face where everything that's moving around it is charting this hard to express sense of long scale lived time. I, I love that you you kind of you bring that up, especially that that metaphor of the, the light shifting throughout a room because your, your paintings are so luminous and they have a real quality of light in them um, as well as, as as the colors themselves. The colors feel very specific. Um, 
how do you go about choosing your palettes for for your your different paintings? I mean, that's a thing that <laughs> they are extremely specific. Um, that's one of the things that I don't talk about too much. Um, mm -hmm. That's kind of a lot of the the back end research and thinking. I get an idea of the basic kind of harmonic that's going to be established of these things, the kind of mm -hmm. like color chord that's going to be struck. Right. Um, but again, it's always responsive to what's what's happening once things are up there. Mm -hmm. It's always trying to say, trying to trust more an action and dialogue in the moment between me and what's happening on the surface, rather than thinking that, that there ought to be anything overly preconceived and simply just executed on the surface. Um, so it really, the, the color choices go back exactly to that original sense memory idea. And what I know will never be losslessly conveyed to a viewer, but I'm not really worried about that. You know, if I was worried about that, I would, I would write a short story. You know, I yeah. would tell someone literally what's there, but I, I don't need that. Um, you know, I think it's, it's maybe a little bit, um, someone, someone that I, that I resonate with in that way would be, you know, like Howard Hodgkin for color. There's a very clear internalized, highly subjective, highly idiosyncratic use of color in, in kind of a, uh, an emotional psychological structure that, that he's like had deeply built up over the years. Yeah. Um, and, and that I think is, is maybe one of the places that like that is out historically in the world. That's maybe closest to how I'm trying to build a, a, a personal color system in that way. So how do you go about uh, choosing the scale for your pieces? That, it really is what the relationship is, is what, what, what my presumed and hopeful <laughs> relationship <laughs> is gonna be between the finished painting and my body and another viewer's body. You know, it's, it's not oftentimes um, you know, I, I make, I make paintings now, the thing that has started to make sense to me always now kind of as a suite, like as, as, um, either a closed loop or as an arc where I've got a beginning and an end, or I've got a cyclical series of paintings. So within that, in, in a, in a small, in a one-to-one in a -one way, the painting is always about the painting scale is always about what the relationship is to a viewer's body to my body in, in regard to what that that goal sense memory is in a larger sense i'm thinking about how paintings of vastly different scales can pull someone in and speak to them in a different tone you know when you're you know, if you're, if you're performing for someone in the back of the house versus like whispering in someone's ear versus kind of loudly, you know, like all these different ways yeah. and volumes of speaking that begin to 
again, echo a little bit of that sense of we're, we are bodies embedded in these spaces. So it's just another layer of being able to activate that for me. Um, you know, and it's, it's a simple way. The, the big ones tend to be larger rooms. The small <laughs> ones tend to be something like there's a flower, there's a bowl, like there's a thing right there. Um, and the, the, the things in, inside, you know, each of these spaces in the paintings tend to be something like, uh, you know, if they were kind of at arm's length to a viewer, they always tend to be something like 10 or 15% larger than quote unquote life size. Mm. There's something about it needing to be amplified slightly for it to have the effect that I'm going for. And that, that was a thing that really took a few years to understand and to mm. see. Um, yeah. Now, what is it about the, um, the intimate spaces that, that you find so fascinating? I mean, there's, there's so many things. <laughs> uh, being able to be in dialogue with, with the history of that, mm. um, being able to use the objects and the surfaces um, that are deeply familiar to me and to cast them almost as actors or performers in a way, um, to, to really find an immeasurable amount of time and space in the ordinary. Mm. You know, I am not gonna probably ever be super invested in making any kind of grand scale, you know, history painting or like social commentary, you know, I, that's just unfortunate. Like, I, I love those things. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to be able, it isn't in my language. Mm -hmm. My language is really, what can I do with, with the ordinary that's so ordinary that it's deeply mundane? Because mm -hmm. I, I look at that and I think that that is the overwhelming majority of our lives is those things. Yeah, yeah. And if I can find within those forms a way to make that enriched, to make that strange, to make that un to, to question the knowability of it, mm -hmm. to make it uh, to make it slippery, right? To make it strange, so that we can question something at every level. If you know, part of it, I think, is showing the opportunities that we have to question even the smallest thing and that you can scale that up hopefully to much much higher levels but i'm not interested in making a terribly didactic painting you know right. i'm not trying to hit somebody over the head in any way <laughs> um and and i found that if i if i were if, if i explore other subjects that the resonance of the type of painting I'm going after falls away a little bit. Mm. You know, you can't, you can't do that and get up. I, I haven't been able to do that and, and get, um, you know, a, a deeply recognizable portrait in any way that I've been interested in the result. Right, right. You know, it always result. It always uh, involves a real large 
amount of trimming away. Um, so, you know, we occasionally get figures and, and occupants in some of these paintings, but I, I've never been able yet to push it further than that with specificity and still be happy with what the original goal is, unfortunately. Mm. And I, I would, it's, I mean, that's, that's a challenge that I have set for myself is to figure out another way to go and to bring that kind of thing in there for sure. But I keep going there and then having to doing a lot of, having to do a lot of wiping out. <laughs> so um, another question that I, that I have for you, um, it, it seems as though there, there's, there's a lot of push and pull within, within the work, within the studio process itself. How long do these paintings tend to kind of sit or kind of, you know, exist while you're working on another painting or kind of coming back into it before they kind of take on that, that, that finished area? When, when do they become finished? How long is that process? <laughs> um, I, <laughs> it's a good question because I think that they, you know, there are so many different kinds of painting and I think that I'm in the realm of painting where it's taken me a long time to understand that there is, you know, what the kind of finish is that these things require. That took a long time to land on. Um, a really, I, I would say a, a very generalized average, just because I compulsively document things and now it's lovely to have a timestamp of every single image and every uh -huh. single state of every image. Um, <laughs> there's no hard, fast rule, but an awful lot of the paintings that I am most happy with oddly take about two weeks. Okay. Um, and I've found in the last few years that I actually ought not to work on more than one painting at a time. Interesting. Which, it, which was one of those uh, realizations when something clicked and you say, oh yeah, this, this works so much better. And then the other side of that is, damn it, now I can only work on one thing at a time. <laughs> um, so I've been doing a lot more drawing and that's, that's, mm. that's, that's kind of freed up this whole other aspect of, of my practice in the studio. Cause I do, I typically have done a lot of drawing at, at home yeah. and then, and then keep my painting down at the studio. Um, but the other, another, you know, I've got plenty of paintings that are single shot paintings. I got plenty of paintings that took six or eight months that you just keep right. being revisited and revisited and revisited. Um, and all of them skirt that tricky place because of how they're made when I run the risk of just pushing it too far and, and, and overdoing it and making it too present, making everything plain and apparent. Mm -hmm. um, because there's always this concern with, with a form of legibility, right? And, and when you're engaged with this kind of dissolution and um, a little bit of removing of language, there's still just culturally this internal pressure to make legible yeah right yeah. so it's kind of in there sometimes it's useful as like a, a counterbalance but when it gets towards the end sometimes it's really risk that's where it maybe gets the riskiest because i have the most that maybe can't be reclaimed you know that's mm -hmm. where some of those things take eight months because i 
make a you know a really confident really terrible choice seven months in and then in wiping it out or painting over it i've lost the six months of really useful stuff underneath i can relate to that i've yeah. definitely been there <laughs> one of my uh one of my favorite quotes from you um that i found was that color and rhythm are developed in ways that keep the image from becoming too cohesive and legible and i just i think that's just so beautiful because as i as i look at your work there, there are moments where it feels as though it's almost kind of two strokes be, before just kind of completely imploding in a really beautiful way. Um, <laughs> before it, it either goes too far or there's a kind of collapsing of space, but yet there's this deepness. And I, I just, I really like, love those moments. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I really, I appreciate it. I think that that's, you know, like you mentioned before, kind of painter, paintings you know I <laughs> uh, I I so deeply enjoy that kind of thing and I think that that's one of the best compliments and responses that I can get really is is eyes you know I think I think my my, my first audience is other painters mm -hmm. you know I, I definitely have had really great conversations with people that know know very little about about painting mm -hmm. um and they get the things that are happening but the best conversations i have are really you know i'm i'm, I'm singing to the other painters for sure you know yeah. like absolutely um and in doing so it is really always kind of how precarious can i make this thing and still be doing it you know, right. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's not, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm, it's, it's the way of having fun with something that's very, very serious, I think. Um, it's a way of keeping it open. Yeah. Um, and it's something that over the years I've found, I was, I, I would, I would just finish things. I would just overdo and finish everything for years. And, um, I remember um, in, in grad school, uh, Arnold Kemp talking to me, I was doing these like big seven by eight foot paintings and things. And he observed that in some ways, maybe my natural medium is actually watercolor mm. um, because of the directness, because of the fluidity, um, because of the, the control on control. Um, the way that time shows up in watercolor versus a lot of other types of painting, um, the deliberateness of watercolor also um, in its relation to ground, its relation to luminosity. Mm -hmm. And I do love watercolor. Um, and I make a lot of watercolor. I, I enjoy working on paper immensely. Uh, but in some ways, you could definitely think about these things as just large, you know, like they're, they're kind of hybridized, almost watercolor technique with oil paint on a, on a big scale. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I can totally see that. <laughs> um, and I think that, that, that there definitely are some people who, who have noticed that and asked about that. And, and I think that that's one of the ways that I found to keep the things alive, to keep the things breathing. And, and not that that's you know, everyone's got their own internal goals for their for their work. Mm -hmm. And you've got all the meaning and the content stuff that you talk about. 
But really, when the thing is happening, if I can get the thing to, to sing with and maintain its light and get out of there without just treating it poorly and, and like harming it, you know, I want, I just want the thing to sing at the end, right? And then we can look back and say, okay, yeah, all the things that I typically aim for, they are, you know, they're there because they're subconscious. Um, you know, there's a great uh, line from Neil Welliver where he talks about being out in the woods, obviously, <laughs> all the time. Um, and, you know, he essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, you're not, you're not doing something profound when you're making the work. The work may be about and resonate with all sorts of profound ideas, but I'm out here painting a landscape going, is this this, is this this, is that that, is this this, over and over and over again. Yeah. And then if you've internalized, you know, enough of the important stuff, you've, you've dropped those, those crumbs in all the way through, you know? And, and that's, that's kind of the thing that I've, I've tried to get in those in some ways. Um, I just, think that's a great this, mode of thinking. I, th I think that's it's a really brilliant. effective. Yeah. It's a really, um, you know, Neil Welliver is like, uh, not, not terribly in fashion maybe ever, <laughs> for, uh, but I've always had a really strong soft spot for, for Neil Welliver. Um, and people don't look deeply into his practice, but he's like a bizarre process painter. He only used eight pigments. He would start in the upper left corner and then only work, work to the right and down and get to the bottom and never rework a passage. That's wild. So their performances over yeah. about six or eight weeks. Um, so that kind of stuff, you know, I got really into that and that's why he still resonates with me. Um, but that idea of, yeah, we're making paintings. It's like, you know, historically a huge ego trip to just be <laughs> a painter all the time. Yeah. Um, but to try in the process to, to lose or let go of all of that and to just be a vessel that tries to get these things up there without, without, without ruining them and just being responsive to what the thing asks for. Speaking of um, artists that uh, interest you or hold a soft place in your heart, um, what would, and I like to ask this question to you know, everyone that, that's on the show, but what is one piece of art that you absolutely have to see or experience before you die? <laughs> <laughs> um, man, I've gotten to see some really beautiful things. I mean, there are things that I have seen that are among my favorite things that just Boy, this is so tough. One, I mean, uh, I've seen it in person, but the the large uh, Fra Angelico Annunciation that's mm. like at the top of the steps when you go into San Marco. Um, I, you know, I've spent time with that, but I've never, you know, the the the, the one of the many unbelievable things about that painting. I just feel like there's 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 mystery and a kind of sense of cosmic time and space in that painting that 
that you can look at for i mean it's 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 there for monks to to pray to and meditate yeah. at like it does the job like it does it it contains untold <laughs> mysteries um to to sound like a real jerk with my words um <laughs> it's it's such an amazing thing um what are other things boy um you know i'd love to i don't know when when these things will ever travel again um but there's an awful lot of things in this uh sergey shukin or the previously sergey shukin collection mm -hmm. that would all be in the um hermitage uh i've never seen those things like those those matisses and stuff don't travel they haven't traveled in a couple of decades right <laughs> um, right um so to see you know the uh the dance at MoMA is is really wonderful, but it's the really subdued one. You know, mm -hmm. it's the kind of like the pink dancers versus the cadmium dancers. Yeah. You know, I want to like see the see dance and music, music especially. I think I would love to see. Um, boy, there's too many things. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, it's hard to choose. It's uh, yeah. it's it's usually one of the hardest questions that I have to ask. So many, so many people can't narrow it down, and and I, I that's. That's one of the reasons why I asked that question. Yeah, um, I'm going to spend the rest of the day just thinking about this now. <laughs> Another question I like to ask is, um, what is one piece of advice you have received over your career that's really kind of stuck with you? And what is one piece of advice you would like to pass on to an up-and-coming generation of creatives? Boy. <laughs> um, let's see. For the first one, um a couple of things um i was told again you know it's been a while since i've got like heavy forthright advice from anyone so this is like all reaching back to grad school when mm -hmm. you get nothing but that um <laughs> but early on in school um I was discussing work and I was told, and it was pointed out to me, or I should say rather than I was told, pointed out to me that I was defining my practice entirely in negative terms. I was saying, I don't do this, I don't do, I avoid this, da 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 da, da all those types of things. Um, to, to, to have that handed to you and realize that you've been not only really, you know, you, you've been kind of defining something else that you haven't been defining yourself and you haven't, you haven't been defining your work and you haven't been defining yourself. Um, so to define a practice in really intentional, generative, positive terms was a huge thing. And that might also be, the, the, maybe it's one of the same, that's also the advice <laughs> for people. Yeah. Um, another little bit of advice was uh, the importance of, and this is maybe more important to a little bit earlier on when maybe finding your what your subject might be, um, like what the way, what are the core elements of your practice, but that moments of embarrassment should be like warning lights that say this is important. Mm. The idea that if the thing that you're presenting 
if you don't feel some semblance of embarrassment, then it's probably in many ways because you're already really deep, deeply familiar with seeing the sort of thing. And the, that the embarrassment is the worry that not only do you not understand the thing, but if you don't understand it, what the hell are the odds that anyone is gonna understand it? And then what, what's, what's the response gonna be? So to see that and embrace that sense of embarrassment because you know, then I just started like looking at, at you know, poetry and writing and things and thinking, oh, like there's, these people are so much more forthright. I'm embarrassed about this. And there's so many people putting such more intense things out there. Like I better ride this little bit of embarrassment and learn ways to kind of explode it and explore it and make it larger. Um, so those were some really important things. And those are things that I, I pass on to students. And I think that those would be the, the, the big things that I would say to people. And don't worry about, um, don't worry at all about your work, not kind of looking self-identical. Mm. You know, don't, don't worry about everything matching. Like God, <laughs> just like get away from any kind of anxiety about that and let the things be themselves and just make enough. And then you'll, it, it will present the logic to you, right? Those are some big things that I would think of. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. I think that is great advice that I'm actually going to take myself. Uh, <laughs> that moment of embarrassment, that that's so true. And I, <laughs> Just hearing that, it just resonates so well. Um, well, Ryan, I think that is kind of the the perfect place to to wrap this up. So, if people are looking for your work, where might they be able to find it? Oh, um, well, uh, digitally, uh, my website is just just my name, RyanSorrell.com. Um, and same with with Instagram. I'm really only on those two places, um, and um, I've got a show in October in Richmond with Page Bond Gallery coming up. Great, um, great. So that's kind of where I'm where I'm at right now, and that's going to be all new stuff down there. So perfect, <laughs> perfect. All right, Ryan, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, if you guys haven't seen Ryan's work, make sure to check it out and make sure to go see his show in October. All right, once again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> All right, I will see you later. Wow.